Hello and welcome to episode 15 of the Main Polls podcast. Today's episode is looking at the idea of Maine joining the Interstate Compact to elect the president by national popular vote. This is something I've actually covered before in a write-up a few years ago, which is still up on the website, themainpolls.com. Uh, back then, it was known as LD-816. Currently known as LD-1578, this is another attempt at getting Maine into an agreement with other states to cast all our electoral votes for the national popular vote winner, regardless of how Maine citizens actually vote. Now, something pretty interesting about the difference between the proposed LD-1578 and LD-816 from a few years ago, and it actually attempts to address one of the critiques I had, which was that we had just voted twice by referendum to implement instant runoff voting, and now our state legislature was attempting to go and turn our entire presidential election back into a winner by plurality, which is what the National Popular Vote Compact does. Maine's experience deciding by plurality produced multiple governors gaining power with less than 50% support and led to Maine adopting instant runoffs as a way to address that complaint. The new bill, LD-1578, rather than adopting the compact verbatim like LD-816 had done a few years ago, and like all the other states that have adopted the compact have done, LD-1578 takes a number of liberties with the compact's language in order to accommodate instant runoffs. And I can understand why. Maine and Nebraska are the only two states that award some electoral votes based on which candidate each congressional district carried. Additionally, Maine and Alaska are the only two states that use instant runoffs in their presidential elections. And frankly, with those two things taken into account, it made LD-816 look ridiculous. It eliminated the electoral votes tied to Maine's congressional districts, and it reverted our presidential vote from instant runoff back to winner by plurality. So, on its face, for state legislators that want Maine to join the compact, like, for example, Senate Leader Troy Jackson and State House Speaker Talbot Ross, who both co-sponsor the bill, this attempt to include instant runoff makes sense. But it raises another problem, which is that Alright, first, let me read you the section being proposed. This is starting at section 6, subsection 7, paragraph C of the proposed LD-1578. Quote, The ranked choice voting count must proceed in rounds. In each round, the number of votes for each continuing candidate presidential slate must be counted. Each continuing ballot counts as one vote for its highest ranked continuing presidential slate for that round. Exhausted ballots are not counted for any continuing presidential slate. Okay, so no big deal there. Just explaining the mechanics of how they count instant runoff ballots. Here's where it gets interesting. The round then ends with one of the following two potential outcomes. One, if there are two or fewer continuing presidential slates... The vote counts of those continuing presidential slates are recorded as the results of the presidential vote counting process and no further rounds may occur. Or two, if there are more than two continuing presidential slates, the last placed presidential slate is removed from consideration and a new round begins. This means that if we have more than two candidates running for president, Maine's Secretary of State will run the IRV machine until there are only two candidates left, 
and the tallies for only those two candidates are what will be recorded and subsequently passed along to the other states for the national tally. So imagine that for a moment. We've got three viable presidential candidates, and the results in Maine break, so no candidate gets more than 50%. Our Secretary of State will fire up the IRV machine and eliminate the third-place candidate. So while other states will be passing along and tallying results for three or more candidates, Maine will use IRV, narrow down our popular vote results into just two candidates, and then pass those results on for the national popular vote tally. So we're adopting a national popular vote with winner by plurality, except we're going to use instant runoff to narrow down the plurality results so someone gets a majority. I mean, what is this? Because it's not the national popular vote compact. What it looks like is an attempt to redefine what a plurality vote looks like. Because with a straight popular vote, like what's being proposed with this compact, it doesn't matter if the winner doesn't get a majority. Imagine if it's a tight three-way race. Each candidate pulling at about 33-35%, and in that scenario, when literally every vote is going to count, Maine will only be forwarding along the results for two of the three candidates. Think that won't be a bone of contention in other states? Especially if Maine's third-place choice narrowly loses the presidency because the Secretary of State redistributed our votes? As this bill is worded, I don't understand how it's not disenfranchising third-party voters. No other state that's signed on to this compact have said they would only report results for two candidates. If this passes, the moment we have a presidential race with three or more strong contenders, there's going to be problems. Our state will complicate the math in the sorts of ways this compact was supposedly trying to avoid. Another thing too, in past episodes I've touched on the idea how instant runoff was sold to us as a way to encourage third parties, but how it seems that the opposite was happening. Power seems even more consolidated now than ever. Well, here we see another example of how instant runoff could end up consolidating power even further. Alright. Now, regardless of whether Maine signs on to the compact, which won't take effect until there are enough states signed on to equal at least 270 electoral votes, because that's the threshold the candidate needs to carry a majority of electoral votes to win the presidency. As of now, I think they're at 195. So that's Delaware, Hawaii, Rhode Island, Vermont, Colorado, Connecticut, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey, New Mexico, Oregon, Washington, California, Illinois, and New York. Also Washington, D.C. So the compact is only 75 electoral votes away from taking effect. And there's other states that are looking at this compact as well. Last I checked, both Minnesota and Nevada had bills proposed to join the compact too. The group spearheading this nationwide campaign, because this isn't some grassroots movement that's organically springing up across all 50 states, it's all coming out of a group called National Popular Vote. National Popular Vote is a 501c4 nonprofit, and obviously a nationwide organization like this has a network of employees, but the two at the top appear to be John Koza and Barry Fadim, and this is from their bios. John Arcoza received his Ph.D. in computer science from the University of Michigan in 1972. He published a board game involving electoral college strategy in 1966. From 1973 through 1987, he was co-founder, chairman, and CEO of Scientific Games, Inc., where he co-invented the rub-off instant lottery ticket used by state lotteries. 
In the 1980s, he and attorney Barry Fadim were active in promoting adoption of lotteries by various states through the citizen initiative process and state legislative action. Between 1988 and 2003, he taught a course on genetic algorithms and genetic programming at Stanford University, where he was a consulting professor. He is lead author of the book Every Vote Equal, a state-based plan for electing the president by national popular vote and originator of the national popular vote legislation. He is chair of national popular vote and a member of the board of directors. Koza has visited 29 states on behalf of the national popular vote. Okay, so that's John Koza. Here's Barry Fadim. Barry Fadim is a partner in the law firm of Fadim & Associates in Lafayette, California. He specializes in all aspects of campaign election law and provides expert consultation in the areas of initiatives and referendums. He is co-author of the book, Every Vote Equal, a state-based plan for electing the president by national popular vote with John R. Koza. He is president of national popular vote and a member of the board of directors. Barry Fadim has visited 45 states on behalf of National Popular Vote. So that's who's spearheading this project. The guy that invented scratch-off tickets and his lawyer who helped lobby their adoption across the country. They are now using those skills to transform the presidential election into a winner by plurality popular vote. The rest of the board is made up of a few former state legislators, one from Vermont, a Californian, and a couple of Midwestern ones too. They also brought on a few different public policy specialists from both sides of the political aisle. They've got progressive public policy advocates, marketing people, as well as an executive director of the Massachusetts Chapter of Common Cause, which is this whole other nonprofit, but not surprised to see some crossover here. There's a computer software guy that, quote, now devotes his time to philanthropic and civic matters. And then they also picked up a former chairman of the Michigan Republican Party, so it's a pretty well-rounded group and clearly well-funded because these people don't work for free and lobbying across all 50 states costs money, which is likely where the advisory board comes into play. The advisory board, something altogether different than the board of directors that Koza and Fadim are basically in charge of, you know, the day-to-day -day stuff. Well, it's not clear as to what sort of advice the advisory board provides, but one of the co-chairs is Al Franken. He used to be on SNL. Uh, then became a U.S. Senator from Minnesota before he had to step down because some photos came out of him doing something very stupid. He's co-chair with Michael Steele. Michael Steele, some of you may remember, he used to be the chairman of the RNC, but mostly I think now, other than being co-chair of the advisory board for national popular vote, he's guest talking head on MSNBC. Some of the other members of the advisory board include former Secretary of Homeland Security and former Arizona Governor Janet Napolitano, former Attorney General under Obama Eric Holder, Colorado's current Secretary of State Jenna Griswold, a name that not everyone might recognize but she caught flack from some Trump supporters during the 2020 presidential election, and also MSNBC's talking head Rick Tyler is also a member of the advisory board. So that's who's running this movement, and that's who's making sure it's funded. Because, as I said, lobbying in all 50 states is not a cheap endeavor. These resources are coming from somewhere, and it's not from grassroots fundraising. Alright, now their website, nationalpopularvote.com, has a bunch of different arguments for the compact, and a bunch of what they label as quote-unquote myths. 
So I want to go over some of what they've put forward as justifications for this move to a national popular vote. Okay, this is from their website, myth number 9.5, quote, big cities like Los Angeles would control a nationwide popular vote for president. All right, so I started with this one because, frankly, one of my concerns is that there will be a focus on appeasing the urban centers over rural parts of our country. The first argument they put out is that, quote, under a national popular vote, every vote would be equal throughout the United States. A vote cast in a big city would be no more or less valuable or controlling than a vote cast anywhere else. Okay, just hold on to that for a moment. It's an important mantra for the national popular vote movement that comes up a lot in their literature, but I want to look at the rest of their argument that it's a myth that our largest cities would end up deciding elections and come back to this piece after. All right, next response, supposedly dispelling the idea that big cities like Los Angeles would control a nationwide popular vote for president. Quote, Los Angeles does not control the outcome of statewide elections in California and therefore is hardly in a position to dominate a nationwide election. The fact that Los Angeles does not control the outcome of statewide elections in its own state is evidenced by the fact that Republicans such as Ronald Reagan, George Duke Mejan, Pete Wilson, and Arnold Schwarzenegger were elected governor in recent years without ever winning Los Angeles. Okay, see what they did there? We went from being concerned about cities, plural, and was given the example of Los Angeles, but now we're not talking about more than one city anymore. Now we're talking about one city, Los Angeles specifically, and whether Los Angeles alone could swing a state election. This answer doesn't address the concern of a few good-sized urban areas consistently being the deciding factor of nationwide elections. The problem with this answer is that it answers a question that wasn't being asked. I haven't seen anyone attack the national popular vote with the idea that a single city would be able to dominate a national election. Okay, next part. Quote, the origins of the myth about big cities may stem from the misconceptions that big cities are bigger than they actually are, and that big cities account for a greater fraction of the nation's population than they actually do. In fact, 85% of the population of the United States lives in places with a population of fewer than 365,000. Their focus on cities sort of ignores what I think the real concern is coming from. Because it's not just about the cities themselves, it's the metros. These big cities, they've gotten so big, they've spilled into adjacent communities that grew to become adjacent cities and densely packed towns. Then they grew and spilled into the next ring of communities. And this is what I mean by a metro or a metropolitan, which is a real term used by the federal government, especially within census data, to delineate densely populated areas of the country that include at least one city sometimes more, plus the surrounding communities. So in Maine, for example, when I say metro, I'm not just talking about the city of Portland proper, with a population of about 68,000. I'm talking about Greater Portland, an area defined by the federal government to include Portland, South Portland, Cape Elizabeth, Scarborough, Falmouth, Gorham, Westbrook. Depending on the census data and what exactly the feds are measuring, that metro might also include Bath Brunswick, Saco, and Biddeford. Within that same Portland metro region, that city with less than 70,000 is part of a metro that has about half a million people, maybe more. 
And yet still, all those people technically live in a community with far less than 365,000. Same thing with Boston. A city with a little over 675,000 residents is part of a metro that has 5 million residents. New York City has almost 9 million people, but its metro has a population of over 23.5 million. So it's not just about the borders of the city, because these cities have spilled out past those borders long ago. Our population centers have grown so dense they have no other choice than to grow outward. So I'm not worried about the city of LA all by its lonesome dominating a nationwide election, but what about LA County? combined with the other California metros that stretch from San Francisco all the way down to San Diego. Add that with the sprawling multi-state mega metro stretching out along I-95 from D.C. up through Philly, the New York City, and ending north of Boston. Throw in a couple in the Midwest like Greater Chicago and St. Louis for good measure. You've got a winning coalition of voters. Okay, let's go back to that one I skipped over, their mantra. Quote, under a national popular vote, Every vote would be equal throughout the United States. A vote cast in a big city would be no more or less valuable or controlling than a vote cast anywhere else. Alright, the problem with this position is that to a candidate with limited time and resources in a game that's decided by getting as many votes as possible nationwide, chasing metro voters is more cost effective than connecting with rural voters. Imagine spending five days and $500,000 in a blitz across the New York City metro. Three events a day, and you can cover all five boroughs, and then a bunch of the adjacent spillover cities and towns. Just think how much exposure that would bring. Maybe catch a Yankees game, meet some high-profile donors. That's money well spent. And then spend the next five days and another $500,000 campaigning across Nebraska a state with a population of about 1.9 million people. From a candidate's perspective, which makes more sense? If you want to win, where are your funds and time better spent if the name of the game is most total votes? In a region that's interconnected with over 23.5 million people inside of about 3,500 square miles, or in a state with about half the population of Brooklyn spread across 77,000 square miles? The national popular vote advocates assume that since every vote has equal weight, that the candidates will go after each vote equally. But from a candidate's perspective that's campaigning for as many votes as possible, reaching voters in metros takes less time and resources per vote than spending time and energy looking for votes in rural areas. And here's the thing that I think is lost on the national popular vote group because they're quick to point out how much local media markets don't matter as much because of the internet and it's possible to reach voters in ways that didn't exist 10 or 20 years ago. But what the NPV promoters maybe don't grasp is that it doesn't just affect the campaign. It affects the platform they run on and the types of political promises they make and what their ultimate platform looks like going into the White House. What are their priorities when in office? I'll give an example. Currently, in Maine, in every federal budget passed in recent history, has been funding for a program called LIHEAP. What LIHEAP does is provide heating assistance to really low-income people. A lot of low-income seniors, low-income families, and all it is is funding to assist with heating costs during the cold months. It doesn't matter if they own the home or are renting, it's paid directly to the oil, gas, or firewood supplier. 
of which there are many in Maine that participate. Now, this program is something that our U.S. congressional delegates, along with several other delegates from other northern states, have to lobby for to make sure the program gets enough funding to keep their poorest constituents from freezing in their homes. But what happens if suddenly it becomes unpopular nationally to be funding the LIHEAP program? Why would that possibly happen? It happens when a candidate argues to a stadium of Southern Californians that federal government funding should be carbon neutral, and that programs like LIHEAP shouldn't be paying for carbon-producing energy. Suddenly the poorest among us, or the landlords that rent to them, are being told to spend thousands to upgrade their heating systems or risk losing the funds to help pay for heat in the first place. Another example, a few years back when some of these southern states were in a deep drought, a congressman from Georgia had begun seriously floating the idea of building a water pipeline from the Great Lakes down to Georgia. And the delegates from the Great Lakes did not respond well to this. In fact, I'm pretty sure it was a rep from Michigan that effectively said pushing that idea would result in violence and they should learn to manage their own resources better. But what if a presidential candidate decides that building a fresh water pipeline to make the Great Lakes a federal water supply should be a national priority? Think about it. Fresh water for the most arid parts of our country, an emergency water supply for areas hit by natural disasters, and enough still to keep an expanding Las Vegas and Phoenix metros hydrated. Imagine promising every Californian, every Californian farmer, a dependable supply of fresh water for their homes and agricultural operations piped in directly from America's Great Lakes. Under the current electoral college arrangement, making that sort of campaign promise would be political suicide because they need at least some of the Great Lakes states to support them. But under a national popular vote, what's the harm? The number of votes you'd lose in the Great Lakes states won't outnumber the massive support such an idea would garner from other states that aren't as fortunate to have a readily available supply of fresh water. Another example. Let's take the federal gas tax, a regressive tax that hurts lower-income individuals more than the wealthy and rural voters more than urban voters. How easy it could be for a candidate, campaigning from metro to metro, taking the position that it's time for a significant rise in the federal gas tax. It's a little over 18 cents a gallon now. Let's say they're proposing it to be 40 cents a gallon. And this spike in the gas tax will fund a network of bullet trains connecting the country's largest metros. It's a cool idea, except that people in rural areas buy more gas than urban residents out of necessity, and thus are required to pay more federal gas tax per person than an urban resident, which at least in my example, would then be used to build a network of trains that would not provide any direct benefit to rural residents. People opposed to adopting the NPV compact in Nevada are arguing that they'll become America's nuclear waste storage state if the compact is adopted. Nevada already stores some nuclear waste as is, and now that nuclear power is beginning to get a second look in this country because of the move away from carbon, a candidate could easily come along saying it's time for a nuclear-powered future, and start calling for a massive storage facility to be built in a Nevada desert for the country's nuclear waste. How about this one? Because of poor governance and infrastructure failure, food prices begin to climb, which leads to food shortages in some metros. How easily would it be for a politician to come along and blame those rural residents for price gouging in the agricultural sector, for deliberately losing crops to frost or disease to drive up prices? and that the reason for the brownouts is because rural people are being difficult, 
and that private farms should be seized and incorporated into a national agricultural land management plan. I know this might seem a bit hyperbole, but if you're familiar with the kulaks in Soviet Russia, you'll know it's not. And I think there are a lot of examples of how a candidate could advocate for policies that would be harmful for specific regions of the country, but especially rural or even suburban parts of the country, in order to curry metro voters. That is the concern that I've had, that there would be a heightened focus, not just on one city, but a handful of the nation's most densely populated metros becoming the focal point for a candidate's campaign, their campaign promises, and their subsequent platform. Okay, here's another myth they go after. Myth number 9.6, the myth about state identity, which is that, quote, the public strongly desires that electoral votes be cast on a state-by-state -state basis because it provides a sense of state identity. Now, what national popular vote is laid out there, that's not a myth. That's not anything except a misunderstanding of what came first. Electoral votes cast on a state-by-state -state basis doesn't provide a sense of state identity. It's our state identities that is the basis for electoral votes being cast on a state-by-state -state basis. That's why it was adopted. Not that the Electoral College would provide state identities. It was because state identities already existed. But let's see where this is going. Here's the response to the supposed myth about state identities. Quote, A state's political identity is based on how all its citizens voted, not just how a plurality voted. The national popular vote plan would give voice to every voter in every state, as opposed to treating the minority within each state as if it did not exist. Okay, so again, I'm taking issue with the premise. A state's political identity is based on lots of things, of which how they vote in a presidential election every four years is only a small part. Overall voter turnout would be a bigger one, the people's overall engagement with local political groups and the types of groups they affiliate with is another. How much influence unions have would be a big one too. Are the Republicans the Yankee kind or the evangelical kind? And are the Democrats the classic liberal type or the socialist progressive? Frankly, when you only have two choices every four years, the idea that the presidential election is the sole measure of a state's political identity is a bold claim without merit. The other thing too is that this is written for the 48 states that award their electoral votes by winner-take-all popular vote. It rings a bit hollow in Maine and Nebraska because we don't operate as a winner-take-all. We distribute two based on statewide popular vote, and the rest based on how each congressional district voted. So if you're in a minority for the statewide vote, your vote can still count toward the congressional district total. Alright, here's their next response to the myth that state identity matters in a presidential election. Quote, The choice presented by the National Popular Vote Plan is whether it is more important for the winner of the most popular votes in the entire country to become president, or for the winner of the popular vote in a particular state to receive the state's electoral votes. Okay, nothing wrong with that statement. 100% correct. That is the question at hand for some states. But, just like before, Maine isn't one of them because we're not a winner-take-all state. However, if the choice is national popular vote, then just understand that popular is not synonymous with majority. Of course, if you've been paying attention to Maine politics at all for the last couple decades, you'd already know that, because Maine citizens got so tired of seeing our governors getting elected by popular vote, but not with majority support, 
that Maine, by referendum, adopted instant runoff voting. The final straw was probably in 2010 when LePage won with only 40% of the vote, and then everyone started putting those 60% Not My Governor stickers on their Subarus. Just think how upset people get now when a president wins with only 48 or 49% of the vote. What do you think will happen when presidents start winning with 60 to 65% of voters voting against them? Because here's the thing. When people complain about someone losing the electoral college but winning the popular vote, they're not mad that their candidate won the popular vote but lost the electoral college. They're mad that their candidate won the majority and lost the electoral college. People get upset when the majority doesn't win. But in technical terms, they're not synonymous, and this national popular vote group knows that, and they even try to address it with a myth. Myth 9.7.1 Myths that deal with concerns around proliferation of candidates, absolute majorities, and breakdown of the two-party system. <clears throat> so let's sidestep a little here to look at that response, and then go back to state identity. Because looking at what their response would be to what I'm arguing is important. Alright, so at least a couple of things they have here to address the supposed myth that using NPV will cause winners without absolute majorities are assertions that are wrong because of main election law. For example, quote, An absolute majority of the statewide popular vote is not necessary to win any state's electoral votes under the current system. Okay, so that's a big false, because one of the results of Maine and Alaska adopting instant runoff voting is that both states now require majority support to win the electoral votes. So, next. Myth 9.7.2. The NPV plan is defective because it does not provide for a runoff. And the first response to that supposed myth is actually pretty telling. Quote, Under the current system, there is no procedure for a runoff. No runoff was conducted when Presidents Lincoln, Wilson, Truman, Kennedy, Nixon, or Clinton failed to receive an absolute majority of the national popular vote. Put this another way, this push toward NPV has nothing to do with electing a candidate with majority support. Not their concern. They are perfectly fine with a plurality winner. And then they add, quote, under the current system, there is no requirement for a runoff in a state where no candidate receives an absolute majority of the statewide popular vote. End quote. So this just sort of confirming that this push toward NPV has nothing to do with pushing to have a president win by absolute majority. But the statement is also wrong because of Maine and Alaska adopting instant runoff voting. Okay, myth 9.7.3. The NPV will result in a proliferation of candidates, presidents being elected with as little as 15% of the vote, and a breakdown of the two-party system. And the response they give, okay, quote, If an electoral college type of arrangement were essential for avoiding a proliferation of candidates and preventing candidates from winning office with as little as 15% of the vote, we should see evidence of these conjectured problems in elections that do not employ such an arrangement, such as elections for governor. Okay, I'm not actually sure why this is only concerning to them when it gets down to 15%, but as I said before, Maine did have this problem, a problem with four or more gubernatorial candidates running and people winning with large majorities voting against them. So the idea that there isn't any evidence that this happens that a proliferation of candidates can cause low percent plurality victories, they're just not looking hard enough 
or they're using this 15% as a threshold so they can ignore all the times it does happen. They add that, quote, Duvager's Law, which is based on worldwide studies of elections, asserts that plurality vote elections do not result in a proliferation of candidates or candidates being elected with tiny percentages of the vote. Okay, well, if this were true, then apparently Maine's electoral history broke Duvager's Law. But their answer did make me think. Think about how other nations choose their executive branch or heads of state, and it turns out not a lot of them are using a national popular vote. First off, I think the only other country that's really using an electoral college to pick their president like we do is India, which probably says something about the ability of an electoral college system that it can handle a democracy of over a billion people. But otherwise, a lot of our allies, the UK, Canada, Australia, Japan, New Zealand, Ireland, Iraq, Israel, and then other countries like Finland, Denmark, Italy, South Africa, Vietnam, Lebanon, Greece, Austria, Norway, Spain, Somalia, Ethiopia, there's a bunch. Somewhere between 70 and 80 of the world's countries are governing with a parliamentary form of government. Citizens under a parliament form of government don't get to vote for their executive branch at all. The prime minister, or something equivalent, is chosen by the elected ministers or selected delegates. So it'd be like having the U.S. House pick the president from among themselves. In some cases, a king or queen gets involved to make things official, but these positions are most certainly not filled by a nationwide popular vote. Compared to our system, our way is more democratic than any nation using a parliamentary form of government. And also Germany, sort of. They have their chancellor, aka prime minister. Then they also have a president that's mostly ceremonial, but does help push policy. And that role is filled at a presidential convention made up of members of parliament. And then also delegates from the parliaments of the 16 German states. So again, not directly elected by the populace. So most countries do not elect their executive branch by popular vote. And a lot of the ones that do, don't decide the winner by plurality. They use runoffs, so the winner has majority support, not just a plurality. Egypt, Poland, Ukraine, Brazil, Argentina, Colombia, a lot of South and Central America really, they've all incorporated runoffs into the presidential elections. France actually used to use an electoral college, then began directly electing their president in 1962 but they incorporated the ability for runoffs to ensure majority support, and every French presidential election since 1965 has gone to a runoff. Russia is another one that elects their president by direct vote and also uses runoff elections if nobody has more than 50%. Some of them, even though they can go to runoffs, not getting more than 50% isn't necessarily enough to trigger them. For example, in Costa Rica, a candidate needs to get at least 40% to advance to the second round. So if only one candidate meets that threshold, it's over. Or at most, only two candidates would advance. In Bolivia, what they do is that the winner needs to have at least 50% of the vote, or they can win with as little as 40% if the second place candidate is more than 10% of the vote behind. Otherwise, they'll go to runoff. Okay, so how about some nations that are already doing what's being proposed? Electing their executive branch by popular vote, no runoffs, no instant runoffs, a first-past-the-post election for president. We'd be joining a club with some 22 other countries. Mexico is probably the largest country to do it that way, 
unless the U.S. starts. South Korea and Taiwan also do a national popular vote, along with Iceland, the Philippines, Paraguay, Venezuela, Rwanda, Ghana, a big handful of those smaller, lesser-known African countries. Panama is another one. They had their last presidential election in 2019. They had seven candidates, and the winner had about 33% of the vote. So apparently another election in direct violation of Dubiger's law. Because apparently that sort of thing doesn't happen, except when it does. I started reading a little bit about the specifics around Dubiger's law and how it's not an absolute, and there are obvious examples all over the world where the law doesn't hold up. So it's not a sure thing, and I think even the originators of the law knew that it wasn't universal. Okay, that was a big sidestep. But it was necessary, and now we're back at the supposed myth that, quote, the public strongly desires that electoral votes be cast on a state-by-state -state basis because it provides a sense of state identity. And here is the third attempt by the National Popular Vote Group to dispel the myth about state identity. Quote, The most important aspect of a presidential election is to elect someone to serve for four years as the nation's chief executive, not to enable a group of largely unknown party activists to meet for a half hour in mid-December for the ceremonial purpose of casting electoral votes. Alright, here's what's wrong with this one. The first part, that the important part of the presidential election is choosing a president, makes sense, but they go off the rails with the second part, about it not being about the party activists going to cast electoral votes in mid-December. And this is why. If the National Popular Vote Compact is adopted, party activists are still going to cast electoral votes in mid-December. That doesn't go away. We'd need a constitutional amendment to do that, and that's not what's being proposed. What is being proposed is to use the current electoral college system to carry out a national popular vote, which frankly, could be an argument for keeping the Electoral College, actually, because even though I don't like that way of doing things, our system allows for experimentation. Even if this is adopted, states would still have a right to withdraw from the compact and award their electoral votes as they see fit. But yeah, none of that goes away. There will most certainly still be party activists casting electoral votes in mid-December. Okay, last bit on them addressing the state identity myth. Quote, In public opinion polls since the 1940s, and in recent state-level polls, the public has strongly favored the idea that the president should be the candidate who receives the most popular votes in the entire country. Support remains strong when people are pointedly asked whether it is more important that a state's electoral votes be cast for the presidential candidate who receives the most popular votes in their own particular state, or whether it is more important to guarantee that the candidate who receives the most popular votes in all 50 states and the District of Columbia becomes president. I found the survey they used for Maine. It was done by public policy polling, and I definitely found some problems that makes using that poll problematic. For example, and I only pulled the results for Maine, but of the Mainers they surveyed, 43% were Democrat, 33% were Republican, and 24% were marked other, which for Maine, some Libertarians, some Greens, but the large majority would be registered voters not enrolled with any party. Unenrolled voters. Okay, so what's wrong with that? Well, this data is from 2009, and for regular listeners of the show, you may recall that during that time, unenrolled voters were the largest block of Maine voters. Democrats were second, and Republicans third, 
So this survey, it's not a good representation of Maine's political makeup. It's overemphasizing Maine's second largest voter block, and it's underemphasizing Maine's largest block. Another problem I found was in one of the survey questions, and it's set up this way, quote, Do you prefer a system where the candidate who gets the most votes in all 50 states on a nationwide basis is elected president, or one like in Maine, where electoral votes are dispensed by congressional district, or one in which all of Maine's electoral votes would be given to the statewide winner. And according to the results, 71% pick candidate who gets the most votes in all 50 states, 21 said they like the Maine system, and 8% thought all electoral votes to a statewide winner was the way to go. So what's wrong with this? Well, saying Maine awards all its electoral votes by congressional district isn't true. That's not how the Maine system works. Maine has four electoral votes, two because we have two senators, and one for each of our two congressional districts. As such, the popular vote winner for each congressional district gets an electoral vote, and then the remaining two go toward the statewide popular vote. This means that sometimes our electoral votes are split between two candidates, and sometimes all four go to a single candidate. That's how Maine does it. So the survey question they asked is a bad question. It makes a false assertion about them how the main system works. So we can't really rely on the results because the main system described in the survey isn't the main system. So even the data that they're using to make all these wide national support claims, once you look closely, the data can be misleading and seemingly deliberately so at times. I think the reason so many of these fall flat in Maine is because the literature is really geared toward the 48 states that do in fact award all their electoral votes by plurality, and they want to use that to justify a move to national popular vote. Which yeah, I agree that the winner-take-all approach used in most states for the electoral college votes, it disenfranchises voters. But there's more than one solution to that problem. So when I look at these attempts at getting Maine into the National Popular Vote Compact, I don't just see us experimenting with a new process. I see us eliminating and removing a perfectly viable alternative that has already worked for Maine and could work elsewhere. The NPV organization would disagree, of course. Their response to the idea that we distribute them based on congressional district is actually under one of their myths, filed under myth 9.23.1. And the response to that idea is, quote, allocating electoral votes by congressional district would make a bad system even worse. And their definition of worse is just a result that doesn't align with a one-round national popular vote. Anything other than that is bad. They also argue that, quote, district allocation would reduce the percentage of Americans living in closely divided battleground areas. I checked on how they arrived at this conclusion, and what they did was take election results from 2000 and 2004 to show that only between 8 and 10% of the 435 congressional districts could be considered battleground districts, and that fundamentally it's better to have battleground states rather than battleground congressional districts. So, first of all, they're getting that 8-10% to number by looking at two data points from two decades ago. But even if it were true, and battleground congressional districts only equal about 10% of all congressional districts, that doesn't mean that those battleground districts don't fluctuate across different districts over time, or 
how much that percentage goes up when voter turnout goes up, which would have been easy enough to figure out had they bothered to include data from any of the past four presidential elections. Although it probably says something to the strength of their argument that they're not willing to consider data from any of the three presidents that followed Bush too. Alright, their next problem with distribution by congressional district is that, quote, district allocation would not guarantee the presidency to the candidate who receives the most popular votes nationwide. Yep, this is true. If we don't hold a nationwide popular vote, then the winner may not win by popular vote. And that's only a bad thing if you decide to fully support a national popular vote, which I don't, so not a convincing argument for me. Next. District allocation would not make every vote equal. See, there's that mantra again. And again, this is only a problem if you're already convinced that NPV is the way to go. But my response would be that, yes, in a final tally, every vote does not carry the same weight. But every congressional district does carry the same weight, and so does each state. And the fact of the matter is that our nation is not a direct democracy. We are a republic, a collection of semi-autonomous states that itself is made up of semi-autonomous cities and towns. We have a bunch of states with their own customs, histories, and historical figures, different immigrant influences, different state governments, different economic drivers, even our ecosystems are different. The types of flora and fauna, how long, cold, or hot the seasons are, weather patterns, and the types of storms produced can range wildly. Tornadoes, blizzards, hurricanes, ice storms, floods, all things that happen regularly in some states, but each one is also rare in most states. District allocation acknowledges the fact that our nation is a diverse collection of communities and recognizes those communities with an equal seat at the federal table. Alright, last critique they got against the congressional district method, quote, District allocation would increase the incentive to gerrymander congressional districts and magnify the effects of gerrymandering. Okay, the criticism that gerrymandering complicates distributing electoral votes with a congressional district method has some teeth. Drawing strange shaped district borders in order to protect the party in charge from losing a seat, or even from two parties negotiating the congressional borders based on political favors with little say from those within those districts, this is a real problem. That exists regardless of congressional district appropriation being adopted. Unlike NPV, which I believe would cause problems worse than gerrymandering. Gerrymandering is a real problem, though, that needs to be fixed regardless. And if the best argument against the Maine and Nebraska way of handling the Electoral College is that it would require fixing an already existing problem that, quite frankly, could be fixed legislatively with enough public pressure, then that shouldn't be enough to dismiss it as a viable option at the Electoral College. With that being said, the more I've thought about this... I think if it were up to me and I was trying to come up with a compromise, I think this is what it would be. I'd look at it this way. When you cast your vote for president, your vote will actually be counted three times toward three different electoral votes. The first time it's voted is to see who wins the popular vote for your congressional district, to see who gets the electoral vote tied to your district. Then it's counted again to see who wins the popular vote for your state and to see who gets an electoral vote tied to your state. So right now, Maine gives two electoral votes to the state popular vote winner. I'm proposing it be changed to just one. And then the remaining one. Your vote would be counted a third time to see who wins the national popular vote, and that candidate is awarded one of Maine's four electoral votes. 
It gives the voter three opportunities to help their candidate get electoral votes. If they're outvoted in the congressional district, then they can still help them get the state vote. And if they're in a minority there, their vote would still go toward the national vote. Someone angry about the direction of their congressional district voted may be relieved to find out that their state overall voted another way. Or the person voting in the minority at both the congressional and state level can still help their preferred candidate when the national popular vote points are awarded. If every state adopted this, the national popular vote winner would be awarded an additional 50 electoral votes, but even a handful could be enough to swing the electoral college. So where is this bill? Well, after it was sent to the Committee on Veterans and Legal Affairs on April 12th, on May 22nd, the committee held a work session without ever having held a public hearing, where it was decided to table the bill which is usually a fancy way of saying that the bill is going to die in committee and never have a chance to be voted on on the floor. But then on June 1st, there was a request to, instead of leaving the bill tabled, have it carry over to when the legislature starts again in the fall. So, even if it ends up not being held over, this compact isn't going away. The supporters of this move in Maine include Senator uh, Leader Troy Jackson and House Speaker uh, Talbot Ross. Even if it doesn't get a vote on the floor like it did a couple years ago, they'll be bringing it back up again. So if this is something you oppose, contact your state senator and house rep. If you don't know who or where that is, go to themainpolis.com and in the drop down menu you will find a link that will help you track down the contact info for your state house and senator. There's also a link that will bring you to the legislators committee pages and from there you'll be able to find the contact information for the representatives and senators that are considering this bill in the Veterans Legal Affairs Committee. Okay, I think I'm done for today. I'm hoping I'll have something out again in a few weeks, but we'll see how it goes. I've got something pretty well together looking at the right whale issue in the Gulf of Maine, but it got backburnered because of this episode and the last one about the 100 megawatt cap. But now the legislature is wrapping up for the summer, I can focus on that one again. All right, that's all I got. Thanks for listening.